All right, all right, okay. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Fight Back podcast. My name's Georgia Berry. I'm your host. I am a kickboxer, I'm an exercise scientist, and I'm the founder of the Fight Back Project, which is a trauma-informed program for women who have experienced trauma and violence. This is the Fight Back Podcast, where we chat about all things mental health and martial arts. And it is my sincere hope that listening to this podcast will either inspire you to start martial arts or inspire you to get your friends involved who you think could really benefit from it because I know how much martial arts have changed my life and my mental health and I just want to share that with the world, especially the women of the world. Now, often on this podcast we have on experts, more sometimes we have on experts talking about things to do with mental health, martial arts, different combat sports. And other times, like today, we've got on absolutely amazing women to talk about how they've overcome battles with mental injuries through martial arts. So today I have my dear friend Chantelle on. Chantelle is a proud Bikinji Nimpa European woman. So she's a mother of three, including twins. And I met Chantelle through my club, Absolute MMA, doing jiu-jitsu, where She is certainly one of the role models. Uh, Now Chantelle has many other roles. Uh, She is a mum, a storyteller, an athlete, a speaker, an educator, a role model to many. Like I said, she's a mentor, she's a facilitator and a business owner, and she has an amazing story. So she'll tell you about it, but I mean, she's a three-time world champion in jiu-jitsu, a former National Wrestling Australia athlete the Oceana Wrestling Champion, and she has survived sexual abuse, lateral violence, racism, a very challenging childhood. Uh, She has had suicidal thoughts. She suffered depression, anxiety, and quite significantly postnatal depression, all of which we're going to talk about in this episode. So I hope that Chantelle's inspiring story uh, does just that and inspires you. Maybe you want to start jiu-jitsu or some other martial art, but I'll let Chantelle tell you herself. All right, Chantelle, welcome to the Fight Back podcast. Um, Like I've said off camera, I'm so grateful that you're sitting down to talk with me and share with all the women listening your incredible story. I'm going to let you take it from here. Can you please introduce yourself to everyone? Thank you so much, Georgia. Really grateful to be here and absolutely love, um, I think it's so deadly what you're doing with this podcast and what we were talking about with your journey and kind of where you're heading with things. Um, so my name is Chantal Thompson. I'm a proud Barkinjing Yimpa, Malayangapa European woman of descent. And I would like to begin by acknowledging and paying my respects to the traditional custodians of the land on which I'm physically based at the moment, which is Lachi Lachi and Barkindji nations, which is northwestern um, New South Wales and Victoria on the border. And I pay my respects to elders, both past, present and emerging. And for those that don't understand what that means is that's an acknowledgement to country that uh, most First Nations people will do. It's our way of acknowledging our ancestors, it's acknowledging our country and it's acknowledging our elders who have come before us and have laid the pathway for um, 
for where we are today and it's our responsibility as First Nations people to pick up where they left off and through our own journeys create, uh, continue that pathway and to create a new legacy built on the back of what we've inherited so that those that will inherit the world after us, um, the world has become a better place for having us in it. And I, through my European heritage at last check and only through family gossip, I have Chinese, English, Irish, Scottish, Sri Lankan heritage and I have three First Nations connections through my mum and her parents. Um, I'm a mum of three kids. My children are 11. I have 11-year-old twins and I have a 13-year-old daughter and I have had a pretty challenging life which has had its ups and downs. Um, I faced sexual abuse when I was six years old by a family member uh, faced a lot of bullying and what we call lateral violence um, because being a fair-skinned Aboriginal woman, I strongly identify with my Indigenous heritage and that means that for a lot of people you're never black enough, you're never white enough, so you don't really fit in and you're either too much or you're never enough. So from a pretty young age I had to learn to stand my ground. Um, being the second eldest of 17 siblings, I helped raise some of my younger siblings and I had to learn from an early age to either accept how people were going to treat me or I had to be willing to stand up for myself. And that meant that from a very young age, I started fighting out of more out of safety and the protection of others and a necessity to for survival but the problem was is that I became too good at that and that became my first reaction whenever I felt unsafe or triggered and that led to me having a pretty fractured experience of school but I always had this determination that I wasn't going to allow my circumstances to define me I always followed the voice inside my heart even though at the time I didn't know it and I always had a vision beyond where I was so I refused to be defined by my circumstances I refuse to be defined by or limited by other people's expectations and by the stereotypes that surrounded coming from a small town being an Aboriginal woman and coming from a low socioeconomic background and I always wanted to give my kids a different experience of life in the world to the one that I inherited now knowing what I know about trauma and intergenerational trauma my parents did the best they could. Um, they were just a product of their own circumstances. So my dad, his father was a prisoner of war and uh, had severe PTSD. So that impacted my dad in many ways. And my grandmother did the best she could. Um, and then my own mum, I don't know much about her childhood, but I know my mum had a pretty challenging upbringing. And by the time my mum was 20, 25, she had already uh, buried three children. She had lost one child to, um, or one child had been taken by my grandparents and then she had my little brother and I to my dad. And when my dad and her separated, my dad got to keep custody of us. And I now know that so much of my mum's life experiences has impacted how I've lived my life. And for a long time I was trying to live for my mum and through my mum and I now say that I with my grandmother that raised me I honour the life and the impact that she had and 
I try to honour the life that my mum couldn't live by being the best mum that I can be and just showing up each day. And for me, everything that I've experienced kind of led to a tipping point after the birth of my twins in 2009. I developed severe postnatal depression and I became so sick that I started to have images of hurting my children and I wasn't telling anyone because I wasn't used to reaching out for help because I was always the one that everyone else came to for help. I was the strong one. I was the caretaker. I was the nurturer and the protector. So I went on like this in silence for a really long time and then one night when my twins were about eight or nine months old, um, I was home by myself. I hadn't had much sleep for a couple of days and I was breastfeeding as well and I had my oldest girl was about three at the time and I remember just sitting there and my my daughter was just wouldn't sleep, Was she would only use me as a dummy, uh, wouldn't settle and I just remember just sitting there rocking her and it was almost like I was trying to rock myself as well and she started crying and it wasn't until her cries changed from one from discomfort to pain that I realised I'd started to squeeze her and it snapped me out of the vision I had of, um, of an image of hurting her and it was at that point that um, the kid's dad walked through the door and I honestly don't know what would have happened if George hadn't have walked through the door at that point in time and I'm grateful that I never had to find out but I basically took off and that was actually the beginning of my journey with martial arts and if anyone's interested in hearing more about that particular chapter in my life it's it's well documented um you can just google Chantel Thompson and there's there's a few uh, media pieces out there and eventually I will have a video up on my website that shares uh, that story but I so I'd found martial arts when I was 19 um, through through a family member because I was getting into a lot of fights and stuff like that. She was concerned and thought that I needed to learn some self-discipline. And that's actually where I met George, the father of my children. But it wasn't until this incident with my daughter that I really knew that I needed to do something to help myself. And medication wasn't an option for me because I'd had family members that had addiction issues and I was more frightened of that um and the risks that that would come so I decided to go back to training I decided to commit myself to jiu-jitsu and I used it as a form of physical and emotional therapy in the early days and that's kind of how I got started with uh, jiu-jitsu and how the story that I now have kind of really took took the turn that has created the woman and the story that I have today there's so much I want to dig into. Um, <laughs> there's, there's a lot. It So for anyone listening who hasn't seen, you know, Chantel's record, she can speak more to this. But from, from my perspective, you know, she's this like absolute badass brown belt, which is like a very high level. You know, she's almost a black belt. She's a brown belt's pretty much a, a, a black belt that just needs to keep going for a little bit longer. So <laughs> what that means is she's deadly on the mat and you know holds herself with so much confidence and that is the person she is today but you know like we've just said first stepped on the mat having just experienced you know trauma on trauma on trauma on trauma you know how did that affect you on your first day your first week your first month of training in jiu-jitsu 
I was in such survival mode that I um, I didn't really have, I guess, the normal nerves that most people would have when stepping into a martial arts gym, particularly being a female. And if you haven't done anything before, for me, um, I grew up fighting. So jujitsu and being in a combat sport was nothing compared to the fights that I'd had in real life. And I think for me, training jujitsu particularly more than any other martial arts. So I've done kickboxing, uh, MMA, karate, but jujitsu taught me very early on that you can fight with emotion, but if you don't learn to channel the emotion, it doesn't serve you um, in a match. And for me, it was literally showing up to jujitsu consistently just showing up to the mats and just showing up to my practice was my way of showing up for myself because I don't know how I knew this but um I knew that if I didn't show up to fight for myself that I may end up not being here or that I was at a high risk of um hurting my kids or hurting myself or potentially all of us so in the early days it was literally just showing up and it was almost like this I don't know if anyone's ever done like a float tank or like had a really good massage or you've woken up from a good sleep and you just feel your mind is just blank and it's just, it's like this emptiness is there. And that's what jujitsu gave me in the early days. I could go in tired, emotional, whatever it was. But when I left, I was just empty because I'd left everything on the mats and it was never about results it was never about I never kept score in those early days um so and I eventually I started to find space between what I was feeling and the reactions I would have and I craved more of that but what was really the turning point was one day I don't know it was must have been about three or four months into training my two little ones were just sitting on the on the floor in the lounge room just playing and the, the funny thing about parenting is, is that there's almost this Hollywood version of motherhood that we get given in Western society about what it means to be a mum, what it means to be a family, whereas, and it's very individualistic approach to parenting, whereas the, the saying that it takes a village to raise a child is so much more than just a saying in ethnic um, communities and in First Nations communities. Like that's that's how we raise children is as a community um and for me that was such such a big thing to learn later on in my journey as a parent and as a cultural woman and stuff like that but in those early days no one ever spoke to me about postnatal depression no one spoke to me about or gave me permission to understand that it would be okay if I didn't immediately fall in love with these two little beings and sometimes being a mum isn't it's another relationship. You've got to find your rhythm with it. Your baby has their own personality. They don't come with a manual and every baby is different. And I think it was in this moment that it was like someone had taken a pair of foggy glasses off and I could see my babies for the first time. I knew that I'd always loved my babies, but this was the first time that I fell in love with my twins. And I think that's why I kept going because I could feel myself getting better and I could feel myself finding a, a deeper sense of self and a new layer of who I really was. Yeah, it's so beautiful. I love like the community and the realisations that people get to have through martial arts. Uh, 
but I want to talk through a bit of some of the negative things that you might have experienced while training. Have you ever ex- <laughs> have you ever experienced like an emotional overload while training? Oh, a hundred percent. Like it's it's really interesting when something becomes all consuming, and you often find. I don't have much experience with other martial arts in terms of the longevity that I have, but um, probably the two experiences I've done freestyle wrestling at, um, at an international level as well. Um, because, you know, at the age of 30 or whatever it was, I thought I would go and try out for the Olympics just because someone told me I couldn't um, in a sport. That's the, one of the founding sports of the Olympics. Um, but with jujitsu, I think I learned pretty early on that to train with too much emotion didn't serve you. But I'm also a very, I'm not a very um, technical person. I'm very much a a physical fighter and very much from the heart and very much by, uh, I trust my body to do whatever it needs to do. Like if you watch me roll and then you ask me afterwards to break down what I've done, I couldn't break it down for you. I'm a very intuitive fighter and very much um about flow and but i don't think it really impacted me in terms of what you're asking until after i started being successful in jiu-jitsu and i started to pursue it for different reasons other than just for what it gave me like i actually started to pursue it to be good at it and i think there's a real difference when you start to pursue something to be good at it rather than doing it because of what it gives you and there were times when I would be training jiu-jitsu and I would put so much pressure on myself to um, show up to the training mats for to be prepared for competition as opposed to training for mental health or therapy and I would just sometimes become so overwhelmed with everything that was going on that losing the reason why I do jiu-jitsu was probably the hardest thing um, in it, and I would get so overwhelmed that I would end up in tears or I would, it would almost be defeat the purpose of going to training. Yeah. And what happened when you, so you're in tears, you're on the mat, what would happen <sighs> then? Well, probably, I'll probably pick an incident um, more recently um, where I got so lost in my purpose with training jiu-jitsu and, and why I was competing internationally and stuff that I had a, a falling out with my coach because I didn't agree with, um, with the way I was being coached and I had unrealistic expectations of what I expected of him and rather than just going to have a conversation and stuff, I had, we had a public falling out on the mats and it's something that I regret to to this day like I was in tears I was frustrated and I had these expectations of how it should be rather than understanding that there's multiple layers to what it means to be a coach particularly of such a big team as absolute MMA in Australia and that kind of led to me um, storming off it led to me leaving my team and leaving my coach at the time and I ended up transferring to another gym for a really short time but that's when I kind of started to understand that there's there's many layers to growth and for me the lessons of jiu-jitsu never seem to stop and as you get higher up there's I believe just as my culture does that there's more responsibility to serve um 
others and to to serve the art because for me it's much deeper than just being a sport and there's you see how people approach it differently through a sports lens versus a a martial arts lens and those martial arts values of respect and humility and stuff like that and for me that's been the biggest learning lesson and a re um reconnection to why I started martial arts in the first place so I became physically overwhelmed I was so angry that I couldn't see and I just reacted in a way that I couldn't control at the time and just afterwards just made me um feel a lot of shame and embarrassment yeah yeah that tends to be the thing afterwards I mean I think we've all been there I've definitely cried and said things that I shouldn't have done in training in fight camp. (laughs) We want to go back into other coping mechanisms. So I know that you got into fighting really early on and you used anger and aggression as an outlet. But when we think about the impacts that trauma can have on somebody, it's very, very common to to freeze, to curl up in the fetal position, to dissociate when awful things are happening to you or around you. Did you have any experiences like that? Whenever something would happen, if it was just me by myself, yes, I would freeze. But for me, if there were other people around, I would kick into the protector mode because I think that's been my saving grace in terms of... um, my trauma experiences and the incidents that happen. And for me, I've always been so connected to my body that I've been able to feel those emotions um, quite early. And with such, I'm a very intense person. I feel emotions very deeply. I'm very deeply passionate. And so my emotions were just a lot, especially for a young a young woman or a kid at the time, depending on which incident I go back to. But whenever there were other people around that needed protection, I would kick into fight mode. Whereas if it was me by myself, for some reason, I would almost shut down. And then when I realized what I was feeling, that I was curling in on myself to protect myself, it was almost like this anger just exploded. And I would just go into, into a rage and just directed it at the first person that was in, that was in within um, sight. Wow. I can't even imagine what that is like. Has, has that ever come up in training like that freeze and explode or any kind of a freeze response? Um. I think some t- it's it's only happened probably twice. Once when I first started training, I was pinned under someone and I literally could not move. Um, and I just, I had a blind panic and I just started thrashing and like had such this wild emotion rolling through my body. And um for me, I realized that that feeling of powerlessness and stuff like that is something that is just really difficult to deal with when you've had people take away your power. Um, And then I had an incident where I was training with my partner who is 115, 120 kilo Islander who is actually better at jiu-jitsu than I am. Um, he's more technical than I am and he moves so beautifully like he's so light on his feet whereas I'm literally very heavy like I'm not agile at all um, and 
he had me pinned and no matter what I did, he responded. And it wasn't like he pinned me with his weight. He pinned, he pinned me with positioning and he wasn't using strength. And I think I just became so caught up in the emotion of one who I was fighting um, and so caught up in the frustration and everything that my body literally went into shutdown mode and I just, I went blank. So it's, but I also understand that I've been in safe spaces that I can experience those things. And it was interesting, actually, I was in a training camp um, and I was training with the UFC fighters um, at the time, like Daniel Kelly, um, oh, one of the other younger guys, um, I've forgotten his name now, but it was actually in the the, the fighters training for the um, MMA class. And I was the only woman there. And I ended up getting... I copped a really hard kick or something and I ended up in tears. And one of the guys, one of the younger guys was almost in a condescending way. was like, you know, you should learn to control your emotions, um, like tears and stuff get away from you. And I just turned on this guy and I was like, look, when you can actually walk in my shoes and show up to training the way I can, while being a mum of three kids, dealing with mental health, working full time, studying and managing a full training load and do that repeatedly every day if you can handle that then you can run your mouth at me otherwise turn around and walk away because I don't see emotions as being a bad thing I said I just needed a moment to catch myself and I'm still here so um I thank you to keep your opinions to yourself and I've always been really direct like that because I, I refuse to allow others to to put their bullshit on me when they have no idea what it takes for me to show up to the mats at all how can other women learn to cultivate that? Because, you know, like we're talking about having trauma-informed martial arts becoming something that's more freely available, but it does not exist right now. Um, so the best bet that most women have is just to get really lucky in a club. But I think mm. that there's some element where you can't just rely on you happen to walk into a club where everyone really looks after each other and it's a totally safe space. You need to articulate what you need. How can women find the confidence to do that? Sometimes I don't think it's confidence. I think sometimes it is courage and having a sense of self-worth um, because confidence is a side effect of knowing that you're capable of doing something. And sometimes it takes courage to do something that you have no idea whether you're going to be capable of doing that sort of thing. And that's why I speak up with so much honesty and directness because I know that I'm capable of taking any judgment or backlash that anyone, whether it male, female, gym owner, whatever comes at me with because um, I still feel, sometimes I feel very self-conscious about my jiu-jitsu and I don't see myself the way other people see myself. I feel like I've got a lot of work to do around my technical abilities and even though I have a brown belt, like I feel like there's so many gaps in my game, but I've also accepted that martial arts is a journey and for me this is very much a lifestyle and it's a pursuit. And while I have been training full-time for basically 10 years, I've also been managing um, my family, relationships. I have earned three degrees. I've started two businesses. I work on the ground at a grassroots level. Like I've worked in youth prisons with young men. Um, and I think for me, the biggest lesson that I've learned is I have to know my truth. I have to know my self-worth and that for me to stand in my truth and being able to speak up. And I say to a lot of people, jujitsu is um, if 
someone is bigger than you. It's about physiology. It's never about gender. And if someone is bigger than you and you're at risk of getting hurt, it's up to you to speak up because we often go, oh, I don't want to speak up because I'm a white belt and I don't, I don't want to appear like a sook or I don't want to say anything because I, don't, I might be the only female in my gym and I don't want um, to, be that, to be that woman. But guess what? If you don't do it, that means that the next female that comes through the door, the next gender non-binary person who has taken up the courage to train, they may go through that again. And that's where that cycle gets to continue because we haven't spoken up. And I mean, for me, that's a luxury because one, being in Melbourne, there's a lot of gyms. So if your gym sucks, like there's a good chance that you can find another one. And I think it's to start slowly. But for me, it's always about going that uneasy feeling that I have in my stomach that someone has said something the wrong way. I know that I have a sense of self-worth and my humanity matters and that I matter and having that courage to speak up because I know that I might be helping the next person that comes through the door. Yeah, I think that's a really beautiful way to think about it because having a sense of self-worth sounds like such a simple thing. It's like, well, you just show up with self-worth and you believe in yourself, but like it's, it's so not that easy. And when you compound in, you know, other mental health issues, just trying to, just trying to survive your brain in order to be present and then trying to think like, well, I'm going to have self-worth on top of that when you're truly thinking that you don't deserve to be anywhere putting it onto somebody else and yeah, having, having that and be like, well, I've got to look after my community is another way to, to give you yeah, being the courage. Yeah. Being yeah. of service always helped me, but on, I'll quickly touch on that because a lot of um, like Western, Western culture is very much about competition. It's very individualistic. It's very much about, and if you go and listen to motivational podcasts, it's like go until you can't breathe. There's, there's no quit. There's no downtime. Real martial arts is about the journey. It is about, there was never belt systems. If you go and look at original martial arts, when they first started, there was no belt systems because it was about showing up and it was more about self-mastery of the self and your skill set. And there's a reason why they say, don't fear the person who knows a thousand techniques, fear the person who knows one technique a thousand times. And with trauma and the way Western um, medicine and Western healing methodologies approach trauma, the reason it complicates it so much is because it separates the mind, it separates the body, it doesn't even acknowledge spirituality or the heart. But the more we research these things, and these are things that First Nations cultures have known all along from inception, is that you cannot separate the heart, the mind, the gut and the body. And we're also very separated from the natural world and forget that we Uh, belong in that as much as it belongs in us but that for me is where I have come up with the heart set rather than the mindset because sport performance is very much about being able to control your mind control your breathing be in the moment and all that sort of stuff but I find that if I try and sit in my head there's too much noise whereas when I breathe and I take my shoes off and I connect to the mats or the earth depending on what space I'm in and I take a big deep breath and I allow myself to drop into my body and connect to my heart, I find that I will always find my truth and I'll always find a way to act on that because there's not as much ego and there's not as much noise in the body and in the heart and learning to trust that intelligence is not something we get taught. Yeah, that's such 
a beautifully spiritual insight into what, you know, is quite common in psychological practices, you know, grounding techniques and people being like, you know, notice where you feel your feet, watch the breath, but really thinking about taking in nature and the world around you and absorbing that as part of your experience, like the way that you're describing it is, it just seems almost more magical. Uh, I also want to go back to when we were talking about when you did have a freeze. So for women who are thinking like I freeze in stressful situations, there's no way I can do jujitsu. What happened after you froze? I spazzed. Um, like my body, my body kind of shut down for a second. And then I, it almost like, it was almost like I froze. And then I had this surge of energy where I just started kind of like lashing out and, and stuff like that. And I was, I was able to tap because I, for some reason I was able to kind of, there was some sort of external awareness that re- could kind of, I could see what was going on. I couldn't control it, but I was able to tap enough to be able to kind of create some space between me and my part, my training partner at the time. And I guess because I've always kind of, I was a bit further ahead in my journey. It's, it was very much a different experience, but I guess where I would suggest people, if women have um, experiences of, of freezing and, trauma responses that they think that it wouldn't be the right thing for them. I think that there's so many different martial arts out there that some people, for me, it's very simplistic approach to it, but it's the easiest way I've been able to, you're either naturally a striker or you're naturally a grappler, like very few kind of sit in the middle. And I, um, I think that if the idea of that body to body contact isn't for you, it's go and try a striking martial arts first. And if the idea of hitting someone in the face doesn't do it for you, um, jiu-jitsu can be thought of as just aggressive cuddles. Um, <laughs> and you see, you can see what kids do. And I think that's where knowing yourself is really important and having, I guess, the courage to be able to go to an instructor or go and watch a class beforehand and seeing if there are other women there or being able to speak to the person at the front reception and saying, look, I'm really nervous. Like this is, you don't have to go into the details, but this is my first time. Or I think finding a way to gently ease yourself into it and finding like beginner classes or introductory classes um, is the best way to go about it. But I think for me, it was just, it was time and it was forgiving myself for having those moments and knowing that, um, I needed to feel those things and I needed to be able to sit with those things long enough to feel them because that was the only way that I would be able to get out the other side of it was to be able to move through them as opposed to avoiding them or trying to control them. It was allowed, I had to learn what the triggers were. I, um, so over time I was able to understand what would lead to those things by reflecting and going, okay, I know I shouldn't train on days like this. So instead I would go and do alternative things that were a bit more of a gentle form of things so that I knew when I could train and when I could do other practices, depending on how my body was feeling and what had happened in that day um, was over time. um, But at the time of freezing, it was just, it was a learning experience. What did you do to work out what your triggers were? Did you speak with a therapist or did you do self-reflection? 
sitting in four walls scared me more than trying to figure it out on the mats or doing it by myself because I was like, I could, so I started to, um, I actually started to ask a lot of questions around trauma and stuff when I was, um, when I first started, it was very much intuitive. There was no kind of roadmap or anything like that. It was very much, um, it was very much about learning, um, about myself and being able to talk to my partner and talk to family members early on. But then as I started to get older, I started to ask deeper questions. So I was like, okay. And I was in a professional space where I was working with people um, that had experienced um, the white Australia policy. They were um, members of the stolen generation um, here in Australia. And I really started to go, well, what is trauma? What is its impacts? But what? how do you learn to manage your trauma? And that's when I started to study trauma in and of itself. And I, for me, that was when I started to look at what was my body's response? What what was I feeling? And when I was feeling something, what, what was the physical sensation that aligned with that emotion? So that came with journaling and it came with speaking with traditional um, healers like elders that, around these emotions and how to learning to sit with myself. So there's a, there's a thing called Dadiri, D-A-D-I-R-R-I, which um, is from the Northern Territory and it's deep listening, deep connection um, and it's connection to self, to country and to others. And that's the practice that I've tried to sit with um, over the last couple of years. It's like meditation. I think it's deeper than med. I, th- I think in a Western context, it's it's meditation, but I'm still trying to understand it because it's a it's a practice that's as old as our culture. It's it's more than sixty thousand years old, and as as a concept, I think that meditation is the surface of um, what the practice is meant to be. But for the purposes of giving people a better insight into it, um, meditation would be a connection point for it. Right. It sounds really interesting. Do you have? <laughs> oh, I mean, I mean, I meditate sometimes. I'm not the best at meditating regularly, yeah, look, but neither am I. It's. I think it's. There's so many things we feel like we should be doing, um, yep. and, and it's like especially as athletes or um, as women and stuff like that. Like, there's just. There's so many things that you should be doing that you could be doing and stuff like that. I think for me, keeping it really simple where I'm really protective of my time. I wake up and this has probably been more since COVID. I wake up, I put my hands on my belly and I just do 50 deep breaths in and out because I don't know, there's been some sort of blockage or experience since COVID started that I've been really struggling to reconnect back to myself. Like I've gained in the last 12 months, I've gained 20 kilos that I can't seem to shift. And there's, there's all these different things. And I'm like, okay, maybe my body's telling me something that I'm not listening to. And it's calling for me to be still. And as, as a, as a woman, I'm not, and as someone who is a high achiever and like the last five years of 
my life I've been traveling overseas three to four times a year competing internationally I've been studying or I've been doing this and people just look at me really weird and I'm like but that's my happy place it's like that's just what I do but my body's like but we're not happy anymore so it's 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 a practice and I think it's it's showing up but it's honoring the season that you're in at the time because the reality is we think we have so much control but in reality, there's very little that we can actually control and the only thing we can control is, is showing up. Yeah. Isn't that it? That's kind of the core of your whole story, right? It's just showing up. Look, I think looking back over my story, the the one the theme that has always stayed the same is that it's always been on me. There's been no one coming to rescue me. Um, so if I didn't show up, for myself then that that was it like it's it was about showing up there was a feeling in my stomach um and I had a I had a dream or I had a vision and then I flat out refused to allow other people to define what was possible for me and so it was a bit of this attitude of going well watch me um and you you can't fucking define what I do but then on the other side of it I always knew that there were other people watching me to see what I would do like people who might not have had the the strength or the the power that for some reason I've been gifted um through my life experiences but also I think because of the path that I'm that I'm leading now and I've realized that for my children and other women and girls or whoever's watching my journey, I need to show up because I'm not going to sit with someone and say, you can be and do anything you want if I haven't done that myself. And even what I've achieved today, I, I honestly feel like it's I've only scratched the surface of the potential that I have because the last five years have all been in survival mode. Like I haven't even... I think I've glimpsed what thriving looks like in terms of I've allowed society and um, ego to a certain point and so many other factors limit or tell me which way to go. But now I'm really starting to ask myself, what does thriving look like and what does my potential look like if I had access to the the resources and the support and the capacity that I need and that's that's what I'm doing now is I'm trying to build a business that can have impact and that is of value but at the end of the day in this stage of my life can support my family and can support my jiu-jitsu as a self-funded athlete because I want to see what I'm capable of um, at Black Belt and obviously that'll take a significant time investment as well as a financial investment so and I'm I'm hungry enough to want to find out because I've been told that it's almost impossible for someone like me to become a black belt war champion in terms of being a mom, holding down a job or holding down a business and, and having all of these kind of other factors and not just living the jiu-jitsu lifestyle. So part of me is like, okay, let's find out. <laughs> yeah, I think your ferocious attitude definitely shows through through all of the decisions you've made throughout your jiu-jitsu career and, and, and in the same sense your life. The, the way that you've gone from and evolved, I would say, from, from trauma to treading water and now looking towards thriving and really moving through that classic trauma continuum that we see so many people unfortunately have to go through. You know, you know as well, the stats in Australia are very, very bad, particularly for Aboriginal women. 
to go then, you know, to be forced to have to go from, from experiencing trauma, developing coping mechanisms, unpacking coping mechanisms, and then slowly moving towards thriving, which is what you're doing now. Um, I want to get close to wrapping up because we've been actually talking for much longer than I had realized. Is there anything you want to tell women? Anything else? I think honestly is compassion is very important in this journey because there are industries that make billions of dollars off of the off of our lack of self-worth. And that has been the case since uh since the since the era of colonization i mean it's so complex being a woman or identifying as feminine and i think males are starting to go through their own versions of this so my final words would be is to take the journey to finding yourself and going within is it's probably one of the hardest things that you will ever do but it's one of the most powerful things that you can do is to invest the time and the space um, to learn to sit with the self, to understand who you are and who do you want to become beyond the experiences that you've been given. And by learning to live, lead and serve from the heart, you can never go wrong coming from your heart, even if you don't understand where it's going to take you. But if you have that feeling and you have the courage to sit within your heart, it will never lead you astray. I love that. Uh, if women uh, or anyone is, you know, wanting to try BJJ, obviously now it's not a very good time because we're in the middle of a pandemic. Um, but thinking of other things you can do, like instead of surrounding yourself with strong women in the gym, you can surround yourself with useful people in your social media feeds. You know, instead of just scrolling junk, you can notice that there are other strong people like Chantel doing amazing things in the world. So how can people connect with you online? Look, I'm pretty much on every platform there is um, except Snapchat and TikTok. Um, <laughs> so I'm, on, I'm on Instagram. Um, but if you just go and have a Google of Chantel Thompson, um, you'll find my – I have a website there. There's a lot of media there. But I mostly frequent um, Facebook, LinkedIn and Instagram. And, yeah, I'm, I'm always open for a chat. And I share my life pretty much openly, honestly, I don't hide anything. There's no there's no artifice with me. I don't have um, lots and lots of followers, but the followers that I do have become a part of a community where I very much share my everyday life experience as it's as it's happening. So I would love you to come and join in, or if there's anything I've said that you've connected with, please reach out and happy to have a conversation. Amazing. I'll put all of those details in the show notes here so everyone can get the spelling of Chantel and Thompson in case they can't work it out um, and just to make everyone's lives easy. But yeah, that's us, love. Uh, we'll wrap the podcast there. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on. And thank you, my amazing listeners, for tuning in to another episode of the Fight Back podcast. As always, connect with me on Facebook and Instagram and shout me out. Let me know if you've got another woman who you think has a story that's worth hearing to do with martial arts and mental health, or maybe you yourself have a great story that you'd like to share. I would love to hear it. 
And one more way you can connect with me is by leaving a review. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It really does a lot for making sure that other women are able to see this podcast because podcasts with reviews become visible. Once again, thank you so much and I'll see you next week.